Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 22. Wow, episode 22. That's hard I can't to believe. believe it. <laughs> yeah, wow. Uh, of the End of Sport podcast. Uh, and honestly, this is a really special episode because um, you will be hearing me, Nathan Coleman Lamb. You'll be hearing Derek Silva. Hi, Derek. Yeah. Uh, hello. <laughs> Uh, yeah, our rapport is strong as ever. And you will also be hearing Johanna Mellis, our new co-host for her first co-hosted episode. You have already heard her. And if you have not, huge mistake. Go yeah, back. check out that episode. Definitely. I think we were thinking of episode 20, if we can remember correctly. You yeah. must listen yeah. to the episode where we talk about her work because it is phenomenal. Uh, Johanna, welcome. Welcome to the show. Hi, I'm super excited to be here with you guys. So it's exciting for us as hosts, but like it's extra exciting because we have just an outrageously wonderful guest today. Uh, I really hope you all did your homework and watched two films you were supposed to watch for today, Hoop Dreams and High Flying Bird. Okay, I hope you watch those films because we're going to do a deep dive on what those films say about uh, kind of the experience of the black athlete in the context of a white supremacist society and what they might tell us about the particular moment we're living in. So we're not going to go on too long because we want you to sort of have, to save time for what is really a wonderful in-depth conversation, in my opinion. And as always, if you're enjoying the show, please like, share, subscribe, and leave a review on, on Apple Podcasts. You can always reach us on Twitter or Instagram at End of Sport Pod. Um, and you can email us at theendofsport at gmail.com. And I would also say that if you, in addition to rating us, also tweet out at us at Twitter, um, like Derek just said, our handle, but also let us know if you end up using the podcast and you're teaching, if you're sharing it with your friends and family, we'd love to hear what they think. So just make sure to tag us so that we find out about it. People have tenure files, okay? They need to know these things. <laughs> <laughs> okay, hope you enjoy the show. Samantha N. Shepard is the Mary Armstrong Maduski 1980 Assistant Professor of Cinema and Media Studies in the Department of Performing and Media Arts at Cornell University. Her work has appeared in venues such as The Atlantic and the Los Angeles Review of Books. She is the author of the brand new This Month book, which will undoubtedly be essential reading, Sporting Blackness, Race, Embodiment, and Critical Muscle Memory on Screen, and is co-editor of the anthologies From Medea to Media Mogul, Theorizing Tyler Perry, and Sporting Realities, Critical Readings on the Sports Documentary, forthcoming this year with the University of Nebraska Press. Samantha, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. This is a real privilege, and, um, and it's just a really great time to be talking about sports um, now that there's nothing to watch. This is this is my moment to fill in space. So thank you. <laughs> it's truly our pleasure. Um, well, listen, we have to ask you, like we ask everyone, how are life and what we can now? I don't know. I can only call it societal upheaval treating you in Ithaca, New York. Well, I mean, right now, I I don't know if you can. Underneath the size are the cries for help. Um, the pandemic has been super stressful, obviously, um, but I also have two small kids. 
um, a four-year-old and a one-year-old. And I really never did expect to raise my kids in real time. And like, I thought I was going to obviously be a mother, but like a working mom on like working mom, the television show. Um, So I never thought I'd be like caring for them all the time. So that's been um, difficult. But um, obviously right now it's been really emotionally stressful to have all of the um, protests happening, um, um, but also really fortifying to see so many people getting out and Ithaca has also mobilized itself. Um, It's, you know, scary, of course, to go out, but, um, but it feels like, it feels like the statement where you say, like, what a time to be alive, like, if you mean it in every sense of the word, <laughs> like, what a time to be alive, like, I'm grateful to be alive, I'm scared to be alive, I, I'm thinking about black life, I'm thinking about black death, it's all happening at the same time, um, I'm just really grateful that it stopped snowing here, which happened like last week. <laughs> so oh that is a, wow. a minor bomb is that Ithaca has finally gotten lovely um, for summer, just as I've been forced to turn inside forever. But, you know, you win some, you lose some. Right. Yeah. No, that's so surreal from down here in North Carolina, where it feels like we've been in summer for two months. Um, but uh, I don't know, Derek, you still love Ithaca? It's snowing all the time? Well, I, I like outdoors in Ithaca. I sh- like we talked about this a little bit before the show started, but I really like like the atmosphere and the environment in, in Ithaca, but I don't like snow and I'm a, I'm in London, Ontario, Canada. So I hate snow more than oh, anything. So I feel you there. Yeah, that sounds, that sounds terrible. I mean, I love <laughs> outdoors, like as a concept, I realize mm-hmm. um, my, my sinuses and my throat, don't care for it, um, but mm. I I appreciate a good Ithaca summer because it is very pretty out here. Um, I think during the period of time that you're that you're talking about, so yeah. it kind of sucks that you kind of can't be out there because like if the pandemic's not going to get you, it's the pollen, and it's like <laughs> just like fine. I will not breathe out there. I will never go out there. Um, so as long as the internet is working as strongly as it should be, um, I will be okay inside. Yeah. yeah. That's- mm-hmm. That's keeping us all going these days. Isn't yeah. It? Um, yeah. But the so, pollen is the worst though. I hear you on that. <laughs> yes. Like I literally am just like, like, I'm just like, I know I cannot have Corona symptoms. I have not left the house, but why is this happening right now? Um, my throat's closing up and I was like, this nature is rejecting me. It's like uh, nature's healing, but it's rejecting me. It's saying return to sender, go back indoors. This is not the life for you. Um, that's okay. I, I do have to say like, Every little, like, this is completely aside. I might edit this out later, but every little, like, throat, like, soreness I have or cough I have, I'm uber paranoid the yeah. moment any of these things happen right I now. Can, and, like, probably for a good reason, but completely it's, agree. It's frightening. Completely agree. I, I haven't even been anywhere, and I was like, are these, I'm checking out symptoms yet again. Um, my leg hurts. I thought I had a blood clot. I was like, you are now turning into a hyper hypochondriac. I was like, you ran a little too hard, and now it hurts. But I was like, do I have, am I about to have a pulmonary embolism? Um, so this is all self-diagnosis. This PhD has a yeah. lot of range. Um, so... Yeah. Oh, yeah. You sound like me. Feel free no, to I, cut I'm, that. I'm a hypochondriac too. And Derek's, Derek's already had multiple coronavirus tests. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So come on. I mean, oh, and by the way, I, I just looked it up the other day. It starts with every symptom, right? Like any symptom you could possibly have, that could definitely be coronavirus. Exactly. Uh, so yes. 
Yeah, uh, it's disturbing. Okay, well, listen, let's get, let's get to the serious stuff now. Um, <laughs> not that the pandemic isn't serious, but uh, that's, that's the kind of world we're living in where sometimes you can talk about the pandemic and it doesn't seem like the most serious issue at hand. Uh, so here's the thing. We want to talk about, before we get into the, the real content of the show, um, the, the subject of the two films we want to talk through today and how they sort of fit in the world we're experiencing around us, I would love for you to share with us uh, just a bit about your new book, Sporting Blackness, Race, Embodiment, and Critical Muscle Memory on Screen. I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but I heard you speak a bit about it on this terrific episode of the Black Athlete Podcast you joined to discuss The Last Dance. I absolutely encourage everyone to listen to that show um, because it's phenomenal and you really you get to hear Samantha talk at, at length about you know, film broadly, um, black sports film in a much broader sense than just The Last Dance, and it's incredibly illuminating for everyone. Um, so people should definitely check that out. But could you share a little bit for our listeners what your book's about? Absolutely. So I, um, I'm really glad that Sporting Blackness is, is out in the world and available for pickup um, or um, delivery, I guess, um, through any major retail book sale, um, even independent bookstores. Um, but the central sort of conceit of Sporting Blackness is really an interest in thinking about what the visual legacy of blackness is in American cinema and what happens when that collides with the visual legacies of black sporting bodies. And basically the project itself is interested in looking through race and representation in sports films with an attention both to the content itself, but also to the sort of formal consequences. So I'm really interested in sports films because, you know, who doesn't like crying, you know, for after 90 minutes or like getting, you know, emotionally manipulated by Denzel Washington um, as your coach. But I also really like sports films because they say a lot about race. They say a lot about the body. Um, and I think that we haven't had a deep enough discussion about sports films beyond how, of course, they're like innocuous at times and they're highly melodramatic. Um, they often are really racially trite. Um, in the podcast I mentioned um, in the Black Athlete podcast, you know, and I mentioned it in the book is, you know, there's the film Race, which is about... Um, is about the sprinter whose name right now is just losing me. What is that man's name? What is that man's name? I blame these children. Um, <laughs> what is his name? What is the name of that sprinter? The the, the main sprinter in this movie that I have written Jesse about Jesse on multiple Owens. occasions. Oh my Jesse God, o praise God, Jesse Owens. Yeah. Uh, so don't worry, we, we will easily <laughs> cut that out. Cut that out, thank you. Okay, so like I said, um, I mentioned in the Black Athlete podcast, the film Race, um, and I think it's really important to think about how this film about Jesse Owens um, marks itself by literally calling itself um, a race movie, um, but is completely um, unengaged with thinking about how race really affects his life. To him, you know, it's just that, you know, only thing that matters is is winning, you know, um, winning the race so that like racism is beatable. And so Sporting Blackness tries to attend to representations of black bodies in sports films, but think about them in a slightly shifted way to think about skin in the game, which means like the actual racial representations, but also skin in the genre, which by that I mean how black bodies have shaped and inflected um, the genre itself by looking specifically at something I call critical muscle memory, which is a term that gets at the kinesthetic and cinematic um, 
and social and sporting histories that are indexed in films, but also go beyond any one film representation. And that's done through looking at Black sports documentaries. Uh, my personal favorite chapter is the chapter on Booby Miles and looks at his iterations from um, Bissinger's book, Friday Night Lights, through the Friday Night Lights film, through the Friday Night Lights TV show, to Big Crit's reclamation of his storyline and his songs and music videos, Hometown Hero and Booby Miles. I also look at representations of Gender in Love and Basketball and Joanna Man. Nobody asked for that, but I'm giving it to you anyways. <laughs> and also um, the film Hourglass, which um, to me is one of the more interesting and most interesting um, films about the revolt of the Black athlete and particularly the revolt of the cinematic Black athlete. So it's an academic book. So there's like a lot of, you know, um, a lot of facts and 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 um, detail in there, but I like to think that it's really really readable. Um, and even if it's not, it's got a great cover by a Canadian artist named Esma Mohammed. So it's like a wonderful coffee table book that can really spark discussion. Um, so just buy it. Um, go ahead. Yes. Trust me. If if you do not like it, return it. Um, I will guarantee that that Amazon will take it back. <laughs> um, but uh, it's a it's a really good um, really good read. Yeah, I and I have to agree. It, it, it does have an amazing cover. Um, so wonderful work there. Now you you've raised this really really interesting concept of critical muscle memory. Could you just like very briefly, like as much as you want, talk about what that kind of concept means to you and how you mobilize it in the book? And I don't want to like you to give the end of the book up and give like the, the listeners any reason not to buy the book. But I think it's a really useful or a really interesting concept from my perspective. Absolutely. And I and I, you know, it's it's okay if I even give too much up. I've you know, I gotta feed some kids. So buy the book. I need to eat. Um so if this is what you need to 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 reason, um, spoiler, critical muscle memory is itself a term that I'm drawing from human kinetics, right? So the concept of muscle memory, which is that, you know, long lasting changes in muscle tissue happen over repeated use and movement. It's how we look like we're effortless in a game. It's not that it's actually effortless. It's that the body has, you know, done exercises over and over again so that actions become simplified between, you know, our cognitive um, facilities and, and our various extremities. Now, I wanted to take that, like, physiological concept and think about how it has been used and understood, particularly in Black studies, um, to think about shared Black experiences. So shared embodied experiences. And that means like Black trauma. So like all the ways in which Black bodies um, um, have experienced a kind of collective trauma historically, whether that be um, Mammy Till using Emmett Till's image, right, to, to as as a recognition of, you know, of course, um, white lynching, but at the same time, also a way to have black people collectively understand, you know, what has happened to the black body. And it's such an interesting example because, you know, in Muhammad Ali's book, you know, um, The Greatest, he writes about seeing Emmett Till's body um, um, in the paper and saying, you know, I know, I feel a deep kinship, he says, with Emmett Till. And I know that one day I'm going to have to face the state. Mm -hmm. um, and so the fact that, you know, we later have him, you know, of course, you know, reject um, 
the conscription to go to Vietnam, it's a way that we can also think about this sort of replaying of this muscle memory of Black trauma. Um, it comes in, of course, Black literature with like, you know, Fanon and the idea of muscle tension um, and reactions to colonialism. Um, and so I sort of wanted to wed those two things to think about how representations themselves often contain critical muscle memories because sports films usually are based on true events. So there's, of course, that originating source memory, but also there's usually these other kinds of inflected memories about Black pleasures, Black pain, sporting or otherwise. You know, there's histories that can be devolved from seeing a basketball player that can turn into a story about um, about about violence of the body. We can see an image of Booby Miles, um, and then we can see his injury and we can see his body fractured. And that becomes a, a story of all the curtailed opportunities of, you know, black boys who thought legs were going to be their ticket out and their ticket up. But, you know, I think Bissinger says in his afterward, you know, legs are just legs. They're fragile. Um, they, you know, they exist, but they can have irreparable hurt. Um, and so I'm trying to get using that as kind of like a theoretical mode of understanding how history becomes embodied in these images that speak, of course, to the representation on screen, but also speak to broader sporting and social histories. This is a complete aside. And again, I might edit this out, but I think I like I have not read the book. Um, and I'm absolutely going to, but I think like, this is a perfect book. I have my students do a critical film analysis and they tend to go to like the blind side and a bunch of like, um, kind of typical, uh, uh, movie sports movies, but I always get them in my sociology of sport class to do a critical film analysis. And I think coupling your book with that critical film analysis would be like absolutely spot on. So I'm going to like try to push that as much as I can. Please um, do. <laughs> Please do. I tell people the, the, I mean, I think the whole thing is, is, is amazing. I know the author, she's fantastic, but, um, <laughs> but I think that in general, I think the chapter, my favorite chapter on, on Booby Miles is, is perhaps both with the strongest arc, but does, but does all the work in a way that I think is always really revealing to people who read it because they don't realize that what I'm arguing about the mutability um, and the the ways in which the black body is able to mean and mean again is that Booby Miles's body has been so textualized it's mm. it's almost uncanny and you know they're even talking about remaking Friday Night Lights the movie again like again. just like the same it was like they lose y'all like what are we doing <laughs> like I don't get it but it's like be another one. <laughs> the movie story <laughs> continues on and on and there's so many ways in which um, cinema tries to discipline that body and even mm. the TV shows try to discipline that body that there's something so interesting about what Big Crit does with his songs which is he removes moves him from black, you know, from the idea of failure, where it's like, I can't do nothing but play football in the melodramatic end, right? Yeah. And it's like, to Big Crit, he opens up his song, Hometown Hero, and he just samples from the film and is like, you know, God made black beautiful, God made booby beautiful, black and strong. Mm -hmm. And when booby knocks him out, booby's gonna knock him out with black Nikes on his feet. That's, yeah. you know, and I'm a smile when I do. And then that's when big crit takes over and he's like he only wants him 
as exceptional, as excellent. Uh, he's just going to keep rewinding as long as he stays in that area. And I think there's something really interesting about Black creative consumption that allows figures like Booby Mile, who are supposed to be cautionary tales and, and really tragic pathological kind of figures, to be sort of untethered from those kinds of denigrating representational histories and been be hailed as like this hometown hero. Wow. Okay. That, that's amazing. So let's, I think we're going to weave booby miles back in here um, because there's, okay. just, there's so much there with what you're saying. Um, and here, so for, for listeners, we first booked you to come on the show um, actually just before at the very, very, very beginning of the mass protests against police violence and white supremacy, just as they were beginning. Um, because we just, I mean, at that moment, we just wanted to talk to you um, about your sort of incredible breadth of knowledge and insight to talk through a couple films about race, basketball, and athletic labor. Um, but, I mean, given the events of these last weeks, you know, that conversation obviously takes on, you know, I'd say a slightly different and perhaps more urgent tenor um, as the sports world has become one of the social and cultural arenas in which these struggles are playing out in front of us. Um, so the films we want to talk about today, uh, and again, I think the Friday Night Lights is, is going to totally kind of comfortably come back in here as well. Um, but Hoop Dreams, right? Another film that I think we kind of keep returning to, at least I keep returning to, um, and High Flying Bird, a much more recent Netflix film. Uh, I think that they're two very different films at two very different moments, and yet there's so much going on in them that kind of links them and links them to our moment here. So maybe for some of our listeners who aren't as familiar, could you perhaps start by introducing us a little bit to the film uh, Hoop Dreams a bit, just in terms of how you understand the project of the film, perhaps, um, and the kind of impact you see it as having had? Absolutely. So Hoop Dreams, we have to already say it's a landmark film, right? It's, it's a groundbreaking film. Um, but when we use landmark and groundbreaking, we usually think morally good when we say that. So I just want to say it's a landmark film, but it doesn't mean that it's not um, muddled. Um, mm -hmm. even at the time of its making, but also in the long view of history, looking back at it. So the documentary comes out in 1994, but the filmmakers, Steve James, Peter Gilbert, and Frederick Mark, um, they had been working on this film for over four years. So it was initially only going to be a half hour short that was for PBS with funding by um, Carter McQuinn Films, um, educational films. And it was going to be a short doc about street basketball culture, um, particularly in Chicago. Um, and when they started making the film, um, they sort of realized that they had something else. And so they ended up shooting what would become Hoop Dreams. They did a smaller film called Higher Goals to help raise money for what would become Hoop Dreams. Um, they started shooting Hoop Dreams for four years, amassing what would be called a considered a staggering amount of footage 250 hours of footage and so this was a film in itself that um hugely um successful um upon its release it was nominated for an oscar but not for it for being a documentary um which is interesting and there's a really interesting documentary history about that um but actually for its editing which focused on two young um african-american teenagers um, in Chicago's Cabrini Green housing projects, William Gates and Arthur Agee. And it was shot in Cinema Verity style. Um, 
and it, you know, it explores issues, of, of course, of class, um, of relationships, of family dynamics, and of course, um, the individual pressures of potentially having a sporting future. And so basically, um, James, Gilbert, and Marx, you know, um, hear about these two boys. Um, at the time, they really were young boys um, who have the potential to go to the NBA, which sounds like kind of insane, right? To say like the potential to go to the NBA, because now we understand that because we have all of these kinds of camps and everything that are all about trying to find, you know, prospects. But at the time, it wasn't really fully like that um, in a sort of wider cultural sense. Um, and so they telescope in on these two boys who really do seem to have promise. Um, and they end up getting these, um, um, the opportunity to play for this white high school called St. Joseph under the coach, Jean Pingator, um, who ends up actually being represented kind of as a villain. Um, um, he's well known and St. Joe's is well known because Isaiah Thomas went there. And so Pingator is, keeps looking for his next Isaiah Thomas, which is itself problematic. Um, you know, always looking for the next black body to embody the original yeah. black body that you want it to be. Um, and Gates and AG go there their freshman year. Um, well, Gates is. Um, 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 their freshman year. Um, Gates is better um, initially, and he gets a place on varsity. AG's on the freshman team. He's what we consider to be more raw, and Pingator doesn't feel like he has the um, athletic aptitude. Um, he thinks he plays, quote-unquote, more street ball, right? So, you know, the race is undertones of that, and because of that, um, his family can't afford to send him to St. Joe's private school, um, and not that, um, that's AG, excuse me, um, AG's family can't afford and Gates instead because he's so good and Pingator sees you know Isaiah Thomas abilities in Gates um, he somehow figures like you know a white donor comes around and pays for the, his tuition so basically it follows their careers even as they diverge and goes into their homes um, not unproblematically we get to meet their family members though Gates's mother Sheila is not in the film that often you can see a kind of reticence to to interact um, AG's family goes through many hardships including his mother, Sheila, losing her job, his father, Bo, battling a crack addiction, going to jail, leaving the family, and finally coming back home. And it all sort of um, culminates in this sort of senior year and this run to the state championship. And that's what makes this film so interesting, even as a documentary. And sports itself is so dramatic, so ready to be narrativized, so already narrativized, that what ends up happening is you get sort of swept up in going downstate. Now Gates's team falls short. So the team that you think is going to go there, though, the team with all the money, St. Joe's, all of this behind it, but it's AG, his new high school, the poor black school, Marshall High School, and the commandos who end up going downstate and they end up taking third place. Um, Gates himself gets a division one offer to Marquette. Um, the idea is that, you know, maybe he will go to, to the NBA, but it seems unclear. AG doesn't have the grades and ends up going to, um, a, um, a junior college, um, but later does end up going to Arkansas. Um, I think Arkansas state, um, for a couple of years. Um, and so 
it's basically ends with them kind of having this 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 moment of at least ascending um, to college. But as we, of course, later and basically do know, um, um, neither of which end up going to um, to the NBA, though Gates himself was the closest. Um, he hurt his knee and actually dropped out of college, um, but then got back in and he finished at Marquette and was really disillusioned with basketball. Even towards the end of the film, you can see how disillusioned he gets. You know, he says, people always say, when you get to the NBA, don't forget about me. And he says, you know, what I should be saying is if I don't make it in the, to the NBA, don't forget about me. Um, and so it's it's interesting because he gets super close, but right before he was going to try out, I believe for um, Michael Jordan's team, um, um, his brother Curtis is murdered. Mm-hmm. So, and that's in um, I think two thousand one or two thousand four. And Ag himself does not ever get close. He he ends up um, becoming um, a sometime actor, a part time. Um, inspirational speaker and a clothing designer, um, and and so very very different realities to their hoop dreams. Yeah, I I think that I so I I have I think maybe a follow up and foreshadowing later. I think I have a question about um, Arthur Agee and like his like kind of hoop dreams two point in in the future. But I'm really really interested to get your read. You mentioned the coach Pingator. Like, and I think that like that character to me was like incredibly problematic in my view as a like sociologist of sports. So I'm really just wide open, curious to get your read on Pingator and like his sort of whole approach and his the representations of him either as villain or like the way he was represented in the film, what's your read on, on the coach? Well, I think he's, I think narratively, I mean, we have to remember that these documentaries themselves are, are constructed narratives. He definitely ends up taking a lot of the narrative front of a larger kind of social stand-in for, for the predatory behaviors of society um, so he functions as villain and he was, you know, super pissed. Right. So he sued, you know, the filmmakers um, and the school sued, you know, the filmmakers and they had a settlement. Um, but um, but the reality is he also was extremely predatory. That's what's so revealing. And I think it's something very interesting because people don't like themselves. To, they don't like to see themselves revealed to themselves. <laughs> So it's like, mm, you literally talked about people like, um, like they were, like they were black labor for, 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 you know, for, for your use and utility. And um, I think there was a, a non-reckoning that, that Pingator was, was unwilling to have. And so the film allows for him to be scapegoated because we remember it's, since it's shot like cinema verita, you know, cinema verite style, it's not like there's a bunch of talking heads. It's not like there's people giving context. It's not like anything else is happening. So all of it ends up being the, you know, it's just the bad treatment of, you know, the black guy who helps recruit, um, you know, Arthur and William and it's coach Pingator. These are, these are, yes, figures who of course are implicated within this larger structure but the structure itself is like never implicated we are made to still cheer towards the end and never think about the larger 
um, sports industrial complex that even starts the premise of the question of a hoop dream. Like it's just, it never gets interrogated. So he's a rightful villain. Um, but, but he certainly ends up taking all the, the, all the ire that I don't think, um, that I don't think that the filmmakers ever disseminated anywhere else. So I think it's really interesting that and I'm glad that you say that he is seen as a villain because I absolutely agree. And I think all of us <laughs> here do. Um, but I was like curious in the 90s. And I don't know if you know anything about this, but in the 90s, how did like the white audience view him? Because I could totally see if I had watched this film with my family in the 90s, they would have been they would have totally been pro pegator. And they would, they would have, they would have said, "Oh, Gates is just being weak." Da 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 da. Whereas, like me watching, is like, "Oh my God, this is terrible. This is abusive." Um, so, I yeah, if you know anything about that, I'd love to hear more. Yeah, I mean, when this film was released, it's like review wise people i mean it was like it was like i said critically and commercially um for the filmmakers like surprisingly very successful and really polarizing for many people who felt either it was super exploitative of all of the communities including the players and the coach but also people who really did feel like they really understood like that that of course he's a villain because he's taking these poor little black boys right all they want to do is be able to play basketball so they can take care of their mothers right they it, it allowed them to indulge in this racial tourism and racial fantasy making that 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 made people feel more secure in their own in their own um non-critical sort of racial discourses at the time and so i think that he he was vilified and i think that's also why once the film was 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 released you know he, him and the school they felt like they were painted in such a terrible light so they were getting huge backlash because he looked like an opportunist and look the man carries it out because if you ever look at the documentary on sebastian telfair through the mm -hmm. fire he's in there as well and i swear this man is still talking about isaiah thomas and it's like oh my god <laughs> let this man go i feel like this is just like you have got i mean goodness gracious like you can't you can't give nobody a, a black star because they will never let it go like it's just like let it collapse in on itself it, and he won't it's 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 unnerving um so it's like he has learned no lessons um and yeah, I think he was he was really vilified. Um, and I think he felt justified because he thought it was just the editing. But, you know, as you know, they say in RuPaul's Drag Race, you know, there's no such thing as a villain edit. You say the things you say. But um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, listen, that's 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 fantastic because bringing up through the fire, I have seen through the fire um, and I actually think it really it pairs with hoop dreams in, in, in exactly the kind of way that I wanted to ask you about anyway, which is, you know, you mentioned this. It's called hoop dreams, which means that it's immediately indexing for us the American dream, right? Obviously, it's like, how is the hoop dream the American dream? How can, you know, the hard work of basketball transform into the American dream for these young racialized basketball players? And they're inviting the audience to imagine as they step into the theater, if they know nothing about it, that they're going to watch the story of people living their hoop dream, right? That's the expectation I think the title of the film establishes. But as you start to watch the film, um, I would suggest that what it's also then starts to do is it tries to um, 
that tries to basically offer a kind of critique, right, of the American dream, i.e., like it's bringing in. And you make a great point about this is like the sort of um, the extent to which it's actually making a structural critique, right? And I would love to talk more about that. But I think it at least tries to gesture to a structural critique, especially through kind of characters like Sheila Ag, uh, Arthur's mother, who to me, and and again, people might disagree. I'm, I'm really actually fascinated to kind of hear different reads on this. But for me, if there's a single really protagonist in the film, it's it's Sheila in that case. And so when she speaks. Um, I think that there's a lot of weight to what she has to say. And at one point in the film, she's basically talking about how like her lights, lights have been cut off, power's been cut off. And she's saying the system is doing this to us, right? Which I find to be the kind of most powerful critique aspect as, at that point in the film. Um, but then, and you've said this, Samantha, that, that somehow Hoop Dreams has to turn itself back, like it has to fit within the genre of sports film. It's a documentary, but you, as you said, it was even treated outside of that genre, right? It's just like, it's a sports film more than it's a sports documentary. And because it's a sports film, it has to ultimately be triumphalist in some way, right? And that's why we have the centering of Arthur's journey with Marshall High School uh, through the state tournament, which they don't win, right? Like, (laughs) basically, they give us all this payoff. This is what I'm trying to say. Even though, Mm. like, the actual live life stories that we're talking about here are not filled with payoff, right? They're really hard stories, but the viewer gets payoff because they get the experience of watching Arthur win and win and win. They get the experience of watching Sheila graduate with her nursing degree, which again, because we've centered her as a character in the film, that's really powerful. It's a real payoff. You know, ultimately, um, uh, William gets his scholarship as well, right? Like, so it's like the film gives us win after win. And so to me, it's really undermining its own strength, right? As a critique, because it falls back into this genre and therefore, it leaves viewers feeling good as they exit the film. And so it's like, oh, actually, the American dream is confirmed. We even have a scene in which during that state tournament, um, the AG family is with a white family in a restaurant, right? And they're like high-fiving each other during the state tournament, being like, oh, you know, the, you know we have problems, but it's good to have problems because then we rise up and overcome them. And then they high-five each other. It's like the American, like the sort of post-European <laughs> fantasy playing out in front of us. Uh, and of course, as you said, like they've cut this film up. This isn't like you seduce a viewer of a documentary film into believing they're watching facts play out in front of them, right? Or reality play out. But obviously, like four years of footage, they could basically put any narrative they want in front of us. And they're telling a very particular story. So what I'm trying, I know I'm going on and on, but um, I, I want to, this is all preamble to kind of get at the extent to which you read uh, Hoop Dreams as an anti-racist film. Uh, and I'm, that's like, it's not, I'm not saying it is an anti-racist film. I want to talk, because I think that it's trying to position itself in the moment that it's made as an anti-racist film, kind of critiquing the experiences of racialized youth within, as you beautifully put it, like the sport industrial complex. But as you also have mentioned, there are a lot of ways in which it's coming up short. Um, so I'd, I'd just love to hear you kind of speak to that. Yeah, I mean, I think I think you point out something really interesting because even though the style is cinema verite, there are really poignant moments where, and I think it's interesting and important that we call them characters, right? So they're real people, but how they function in this film is characters, right? Um, and also really like large tropified characters, the single mom, the crack addicted father, right? Um, the good white people at the restaurant, the bad villain coach, um, all of these things function in in this really particular way that, that, that belies the 
the fiction along with the festicity of, of, of it being nonfiction. And so it's aware that it can comment on social structures. So when Sheila is saying, yes, my lights have been turned off. How do you think I feed these kids with this little bit of money? There's also a way in which she's not just looking at the audience. And that's what I think when it gets to the question of, is this an anti-racist film? And not that it's just about the work itself, but also there is an element of intentionality here. She's also talking to the directors. My lights are off. You're sitting here with your camera. Right. Looking at me doing, you know, um, you know, your form of ethnography and anthropology. um, And we're we're going along with this, not knowing what we're going to reap from this. And I will even have a small tangent to say, you know, the big thing was the fear of exploitation. Um, Curtis had a lot of fear. Curtis is um, William Gates's, what was William Gates's brother. Um, And um, the one thing that a lot of people don't always know is that so they did end up actually making William and Arthur um, equal shareholders in the profits of the film um, with the filmmakers and even giving some shares to the family, but they couldn't do that until after they were done playing basketball because of the NCAA rules. So they did end up, you know, having a, a financial um, stake, but that we're talking, you're talking so many years down the line <laughs> in this process, right? And so not only, um, so there is this exploitative property that permeates the film and the filmmaker's own intentionality to expose who are they exposing who are they being exposed to and i think that's also the tension and the social critique that happens um and also the ways in which of course there's the undercut of the narrative momentum and the dramatic momentum of the film is that gates become sidelined not just because of his injury because his storyline is not necessary for the larger ideology of the film which um you know has been heavily obviously critiqued by bell hooks which is like it's all about the love of the game and i don't mean that in the sense of like oh how we talk about for you know for the love of the game but it's like it's winning at all costs the person who becomes obsessed with the game and this itself holds on because the one thing nobody talks about and interestingly enough i talk about in sporting blackness the book that's available um for anybody to pick up um is talk about hoop dreams and talk about its bastard son hoop reality the documentary (laughs) made by lee davis that nobody talks about in relationship to hoop dream because it technically has no official affiliation but arthur h's body carries over it stars him and patrick beverly interestingly enough uh, right and it's all about doing like heavy statistic work and a lot of on-screen like you know basically the odds are against you the odds are against you the odds are against you and the ways in which that film is trying to actually do the kind of work of saying even as we think about shared experiences shared embodied experiences arthur agee is the reality that most people don't make it and oddly enough at the time patrick beverly kind of did and didn't make it of course now patrick beverly is patrick beverly so it you know hoop hoop dreams kind of did get a a storybook ending but it's you know that film in conversation with hoop reality in conversation with hoop dreams is actually much more interesting because hoop dreams to me is not an anti-racist film even as it wants to try to help us confront issues of race it doesn't necessarily want us to 
confront issues of racism because it hardly it hardly discusses them. It uses Spike Lee in the film to tell us, okay, you know, all these colleges are just exploiting you, right? You know, they're going to get you to come here and play, you know, for your, for your scholarship and et cetera, but they don't really care about you, et cetera, et cetera. Right. But like, I think we have to ask is, is anti-racist films about just, you know, exposing us to racism. If that's the case, we can watch the help. Like I see the racism, got it. Right. Or is it also about doing a kind of racial justice, right. In sort of either showing the black experience, Experience in a new light can we say this was this was revelatory to white people and if anti-racism work is for white people then that's not exactly the anti-racist work um that i think perhaps is the most powerful but i still think that it's really interesting i think it's a text that makes us think about race makes us think about meritocracy uh, it makes us think about the intersections of social issues um, and um, larger social structures. We can see the St. Joe's school and how they have grass, right? We can see the Marshall kids and what they don't have. We can see the stratification, but we, but that's all that we see. And it relies on us to think about that critically. And of course, so therefore it's just going to depend on the last element, which is the viewer interaction with the text. So if some really well-doing white liberal person watches this and they're like, (gasps) oh my God, those poor boys, right? Mm-hmm. That's why, mm, thank God, you know, okay. And then moving on, Sports Center. why don't you sell <laughs> that player? He's doing nothing. Tell Cap to stand up, blah, blah, blah. Like, you know, it's like, it's, 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 it's really fraught in a, in, a, in a difficult way because it's such a watchable film. It's so deeply entertaining, but you get seduced by the seduction of winning, by, by basketball, and by the dream itself. You want them to get to the NBA, and that is nonsense. Like, what am I, why am I wanting this? I don't want them to get out of, I want them to get out of poverty. I want them, I want Sheila to feel supported and loved. I want for the, for Bo not to be, Bo and Curtis to be alive. Mm-hmm. Like, those are the dreams. And so to be seduced by the hoop is really, is really, is to be romanced by the wrong things. And that's how this film operates. So you kind of naturally brought me, like we mentioned earlier, like I, I really kind of wanted to, to at least touch on what I view as the sequel. I Like I know it's not officially affiliated, but Hoop Reality, like to me, this like painted a picture and, and full disclosure, like I'm a sociologist, I am someone who studies sport. This, these two films, when I watch them kind of back to back, I like saw the issues of an outsider coming in and trying to tell a story versus someone who was part of who was the foundation of that story trying to tell a much clearer story about the reality of their own experiences. Like that's what I saw in Hoop Dreams versus Hoop Reality. I saw like anthropologists on the one hand coming in and trying to tell a story. Um, however problematic or how whatever issues goes with that. And then I see however many years, like 13, 14 years later, Hoop Reality coming out. And that is talk like basically it is a, a whole different perspective of the reality that you've so eloquently spoken about in terms of like actually presenting the reality of, of what it means to be a high school 
basketball player. So like my, I guess my broad question is like, do you um, see, or, or what's the comparison there between hoop dreams and hoop reality? Like which is more quote unquote real or which is like a better representation of what um, life is like as a, as a high school basketball player? I mean, I think that they're different. I mean, I think it's a great question and I'm going to do the thing where I just like, of course, reject it at the same time. It's a really <laughs> important question, but I, but I only reject it because I think this is where it gets to, I think one of the points um, you may have made earlier about them being works of specific time, right? Mm. So hoop reality inherits a different landscape, sporting landscape where the business of sport, of course, is there in hoop dreams, and we see that, but it's, it's actually so falsified that all that it can do is create these symbolic layers between, like, Michael Jordan at the All-Star Game and William Gates to a very uncomfortable hip-hop beat, right? That's like, hoop dreams, hoop dreams. I was like, oh, my <laughs> God, don't release that track. That's not a bop. Like, it's, you know, that's that's the world that it can imagine because that's also textually the world that it's in. And hoop reality is so aware of, it's in the wake of it, right? And I don't mean even just in the, it's in the wake of that, just the way hoop dreams inaugurated really a canon of filmmaking and interestingly enough both in terms of documentary work like sports film documentaries but also in terms of fiction films right we can't think about above the rim we can't think about blue chips we can't think about he got game right without kind of sunset park you know in conversation with a kind of um cinematic familiarity that that hoop dreams provided and so hoop reality also comes in the wake of that and so it it's aware of itself of course it has arthur agee i mean it's a totally obviously not at all in dialogue with the filmmakers because you can tell they can't use any footage like he shows like newspaper clippings of himself in college right he's like this is me um you know but they can't really you know they're not being able to obviously show footage um but it's so aware aware of the different landscape and the 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 business of sport now um it's it's all about the percentages it's all about like 1.5 percent of high school graduates will get into a division one college right only 1.2 percent of college players will be drafted to the nba um it's it's so aware of the reality that it's constantly just throwing that back in your face and honestly when you look at patrick beverly play like i'm not believing it He's so thin, like he tried so hard, right? But it's just like, I was like, oh, bro. Like, I don't know what was in the food and the protein shake. What was the diet regimen? I don't know how that body turned into the other body. But it's like, you you actually, you aren't seduced. So it's interesting because you think to yourself, like, I want this for you. But the reality is, like, your team's not that great. You seem to be okay, but you didn't really go to the camps. Like, you like, so it's the relationship, yes, with the filmmaker seeming it's seeming more, um, you know, from the people. I would say yes and no because there's a part of this that feels serendipitous. But even in the the fact that they use Arthur Agee as a voiceover, which I actually like, I think it reclaims the narrative of Hoop mm-hmm. Dreams. It reclaims his narrative and his memories and his experiences within the recursive history that he's always enveloped in. But like. 
at the same time, it's sort of like, oh, my friend said there was a kid that reminded them of me, like, you know, and then I'm going to meet you for the first time. The relationship didn't feel organic. There was no recognition of William Gates. Um, You know, it felt also like, let's make some money. Like, you know, can I get some points on the back end? Right. Um, And so I just like, you never get seduced. So when I find that, you know, he even got drafted and then, you know, wait, wait, all that stuff that ends up happening to his career before he gets, you know, with the, the Rockets and then later the Clippers, um, it's almost shocking. And mm-hmm. for hoop dreams, you start thinking, okay, maybe not Arthur, but maybe William. Like maybe William, like this could happen. Like he's going to build up. He's going to get going. And hoop reality is like, look, this is a business. It feels a little bit like through the fire, like where they're constantly reminding you, this is a business and the the odds are not in your favorite. This is hunger games. I'm sorry. You are the people who all got killed, right? You are, you are not Jennifer Lawrence. There are, there are no stars. And I think that's, what's really interesting about the pairing of the two, let alone, of course, the the sort of naming, the, the dream, the reality. I mean, soon it's going to be hoop nightmare and, you know, what do you call it? You know, hoop existential crisis, right? It's, it's going to keep going and going, starring me, a person who cannot hoop at all, um, you know. <laughs> These are, I sort of went on a tangent right there, but um, that's one of my thoughts. <laughs> so um, I wanted to ask something that I always ask my students in my history classes, and you all may ask them in your respective classes as well. Um, but whenever in class we're reading a primary source, historical document, I always ask, you know, what from what perspective is this being written? And conversely, like whose voices and perspectives are being left out? Um, and so I guess I would ask you, like, in order for Hoop Dreams to maybe be a little bit more anti-racist or sort of full on more of an anti-racist film, like whose perspectives would need to be highlighted more or sort of what would what more would we need, I guess, from um, the people that it's filmed by? That's a really great question. I mean, I think that the totality of it like when i think about the distribution and the the financial like you know of course like the filmmakers weren't making money even in the beginning they only finished this because they got um a major fellowship um and so i if i think about intent and 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 redress um those things sort of feel okay i guess but i think what's missing is I think what's missing was the directional choice to not have any narration um, and therefore not seeking out people who could say the other things that you needed them to say. Yeah. That's the thing with document. You can, you can totally do cinema, like, but you've got to then like go ask other stakeholders, mm-hmm. like ask them about like, you know, what, is, what does it mean to put your prospects in this? Why is meritocracy maybe or maybe not a lie, right? Like, you know, even if they wanted to do, even themselves who are an, announced in the text on the occasional times that there are, you know, um, minor, um, um, minor voiceover to get you from one part to another part or to explain something like, oh, Sheila's lights got cut off, right? Um, I mean, I think, but I think the premise itself of like, you went into a, a, a space um, to find people and to watch them and to, to say something about something that you did not know about. The premise itself is wrong. Yeah. <laughs> so um, 
So who's missing is all of the people who are organically already in that space, thinking and dreaming with them. Um, so, so basically everyone else. And I, and I only say that also because look at the end of the film, Catherine, um, you know, William Gates, his girlfriend and later wife and mother of his child pop up. So it's yes. like all the people, yeah. right. Who are not being revealed to you because they don't trust you. Right. So all those people, all those perspectives that actually would have made this in an in-flush text and not a, in, and not a character fantasy um, are missing. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's beautifully put. Yeah, that, that struck me uh, as someone who, who has a young child as well. I mean, the, the idea that you would basically say nothing about the fact that he, he is an active father with a child who he clearly cares about, and that doesn't, that doesn't rate mention in your film. Uh, seems like a bit of a glaring omission uh, and tells us a lot about what the filmmakers care about and what their vision for like black masculinity or like a, a good black life is um, a deeply, deeply flawed vision. Um, and so, yeah, I, and I, and I would yeah, say just, to add, I would say just to add to that again, as the historian, maybe this is not just me, but I was like screaming at the TV, like there's no historical context about anything white flight anything that kind of helped to create the conditions within which they're living i mean there's nothing absolutely which just drove me crazy i'm like how is this even a documentary um yeah. which is driving me wild it just exists and that's why it almost feels also kind of timeless right so it could be any time like even though of course it has a look right so we know it's past but like there's a there's a thinginess about it that it's like okay there are still blighted urban communities right there are still little black kids on courts right there's all of these things that it's it's made to be timeless as a way instead of thinking about the kinds of situational structural social and historical forces that shape environments um, and people um, and histories of space um, and place and opportunity that become evacuated in the text that is really focused on kind of being um, in time and out of time. Okay, well, and thank you for mentioning time because that allows me so effortlessly to shift forward in time um, <laughs> to the other film that we want to talk about right now, uh, which is High Flying Bird, uh, the Netflix film uh, that was really, I'm, now I'm blanking, was it uh, 2019? It's 2019, 2019, right? yeah. Yeah, 2019, oh, God, it feels like a long time ago and also not that long. I, I don't know what to say <laughs> about but uh, basically, just start us off because, I mean, we have, a, we have obviously a lot to say about this and we want to talk about the films, I think, together and yeah. also we haven't yet talked about now. Right. And what these films say about now. And we definitely want to get there. But just because you, you did a, you did a natural job with Hoop Dreams. Yeah. What, what is yeah. what is the argument of High Flying Bird? How do you understand its intervention? OK, so High Flying Bird 2019. Right. So as a film scholar, I've got to say, you know, the little things like directed by Steven Soderbergh, um, shot, interestingly enough, on an iPhone 8 um, with a, um, wow. with a special lens and um, what do we call it? Uh, anamorphic lens um, with. And, and, and that's meaningful both towards this, the, the way scale looks in the film, um, but also visually just interesting. And we think about cinematography, but um, with a story that is actually suggested by Andre Holland and with a screenplay by um, Oscar winning screenwriter and playwright Terrell Alvin McCraney and itself um, uh, sort of the kind of phrase it says what it's about is the game above the game, which means like it's interested in the sort of capitalist driven white controlled business of professional basketball. And so unlike other sports films, its main character is not 
you know, particularly um, a sporting figure, but just slightly adjacent, um, looking at a black sports agent, um, Ray, played by the fantastic Andre Holland, um, who is trying to help his clients weather a professional basketball lockout between the Players Association and the league owners. And um, the lockout, of course, privileges the obscenely wealthy white owners, and they're trying to broker this TV deal, and it's been going on for six months, and Ray feels a lot of urgency because his one of his clients is the number one draft pick, Eric Scott, um, who's in dire financial straits, in part because he took this stupid loan from this white guy at a party, um, and Ray admonishes him for doing that. And so Ray himself, this is a game, this is a film about basketball, but also, you know, of course, like kind of a film about chess, you know, ends up kind of moving players and figures and the league owners and the players association to get um, the lockout um, um, to be settled and resolved. Um, and one sort of major thing to sort of point out about this is that it, in doing so, um, Ray is trying to push us to think both the audience, but also um, his um, client Eric to think about the possibility of a player controlled league, um, particularly because um, he's thought about the ways in which players have been affected, including his cousin, a side story about um, who seems to um, um, have um, died um, and had obviously some sort of issue um, in part because um, um, he was a gay basketball player and didn't feel comfortable coming out. And, um, but he wants the players themselves to think about basically not being pawns, you know, and actually take the game into their own hands and is super inspired by um, um, his mentor and um, neighborhood coach Spence played by the fabulous and great Bill Duke um, um, to think about what happens when black people take control of a game that they originally had various kinds of control and, um, and innovative agency within. And he's able to do so in a way that um, puts him on top um, that, like I said, resolves the lockout and, um, and also kind of hints towards the idea that there would be a revolt to the black athlete, both including a cameo from Harry Edwards, the sociologist and architect of the revolt to the black athlete um, and the 68 Olympics um, 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 black power salute that happened with the Olympic Project for Human Rights or OPHR. Um, and also with the, the sort of cameo of Harry Edwards book um, at the end of the film. But, oh, one more small thing. Also super interesting film because also fiction film, but also includes really interesting documentary edits that include um, 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 coverage of former rookie players talking about their experiences as rookies, um, including, um, um, oh, including Carl Anthony Towns. Who else? Who was the other one? Reggie, ja Reggie Jackson, I believe. And, um, and Spidey. You know, he went exactly. to Louisville. Yep. Yep. He's a superstar. So we really yes. should. <laughs> we should. We should. Um, oh my God. Donovan Mitchell. Yes, Donovan Mitchell. Right. Yeah. They're talking about their experiences. And Reggie Jackson actually um, um, was one of the players who was drafted um, when the league was in the lockout. So really interesting film that uses documentary elements within its fictional narrative. Okay. I just, I have, there, we got, there's so many questions, but I just have to really quickly. I re like I just rewatched the film. You know, I've even like written a little bit about the film, and I you know I reread what I wrote, and then I rewatched the film, and I was like, whoa! I didn't mention that documentary bit. Like, what what the hell do you do with that? But I actually I really want to know, what do you make of that component of the film? How does it fit? 
That's such a great question. I actually, I do also write about this. It's in the, it's in the conclusion of Sporting Blackness. Um, so it's a nice little, it was a final sports film that I had watched um, in writing this book. And I felt like it was so um, exceptional that I needed to, to reckon with it. And what I really like about it is particularly the ways in which um you know, of course, this film benefits from the beauty of McCraney's writing um, and, of course, the acting of Andrew Holland and the facility and skill of Soderbergh, but also this awareness of the kind of authenticating presence of, of you know, the, the, the actual players. And I think adding this sort of documentary impulse to obviously a film that feels very resonant, that it's, you know, that that feels very real um, and that feels very... Um, really significant to this time period, both the one we're in now, but even in 2019 when it was released, um, was a way to kind of sort of say, we are talking about a world that could exist. Like, so by bringing in the real, it was, you know, even in its its fiction, was trying to get at sort of this kind of dialogue between the real sporting world and the sporting world that it was trying to imagine right where players had control of the game like where you know where 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 black bodies in mass also you know controlled their labor and i think that's something that's that's really powerful about that um because it's something so unique about being a rookie particularly in that league yeah i like that Absolutely. Um, so both films reflect deeply on the issue of sporting power and agency in terms of what levels of power people have access to in shaping their lives within the world of basketball and beyond basketball, arguably. How might we use these films to understand today's anti-racist revolution and fight for power? Well, I think with High Flying Bird, I mean, it's such a good film. God, it's just, it's so good. And it's partially good because it's, it's so aware of the contemporary moment and the, like I said, the imagination of what it would be if, if it was a player run industry, right? If they controlled, as they keep saying, the game over the game, right? The game that the, that the owners, you know, put over this game. And, but I also think as like a host, like, its relationship to history is so interesting in like how the characters meaningfully like recount history. You know, they bring up the Harlem Rens, they bring up this history, you know, before the league was integrated. Right. So when, when, um, particularly the Harlem Rens in the 1920s, you know, you know, played outside of, outside of these sort of official sanctioned areas. And then of course later went to, um, you know, um, played against a white team and won the national champion, um, um, the national championship um, before before integration. Is that the film is so interested in sort of these histories of of of, of player control of the economy of the sport that I think it speaks to particularly this moment about thinking about player autonomy. Um, in the league, is it feasible, right? Um, thinking about a kind of sporting socialism, one that, you know, helps us sell out this like capitalist machine of the NBA. Um, and it's totally taking shots at the NBA. It's right. It's like, it shows the owners as this disgusting people like doing snot rockets in the middle of a sauna. It's like, Ugh. you are the worst Kyle McLaughlin. Like it's just, uh, you know, it, it shows, <laughs> you know, how they get played, how the player, you know, association, you know, gets played. And the NBA, which has like, you know, of course, like actually of the players associations, like for like various leagues, like one of the best ones. Right. It's just it's so aware 
that things could look differently that I think it's I think it's sort of like this like fictional blueprint like if you stop playing they can't make you like they cannot like you're not a puppet like you're not they can't physically make you you are the game and even the film is uninterested in the game there's Mm -hmm. a game that happens and the camera pans like it's like don't lose focus don't lose focus it's so interesting and i think that that kind of focus on on a kind of justice a kind of awareness and a kind of setting the grounds for revolt is really powerful um, in this film in particular and i that kind of brings me to a question i was really interested when i was watching this film and again like probably for the 13th time in this episode (laughs) i'll drop the fact that like i'm a sociologist when sam picks up Harry Edwards, the revolt of the black, the black athlete. Like I thought that was like a really sort of powerful, not only moment, just but like a, a powerful thing in the film. So I'm, I'm, I, I'm trying to even like figure out exactly what I want to ask here, but I, I'm really interested to get your take on the place of that book and Harry Edwards um, work in general in this film. And, and before you do so, I just want to—I just want Derek to reflect a little bit on why it's so important for him to identify as a sociologist. <laughs> That's bringing the table here. So we can just bracket that for the moment. This this podcast is brought to you by the American Sociologist Association. <laughs> no, 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 please do not say that. No, I'm just kidding. So sorry. No, just kidding. This is brought to you by viewers like you. Um, <laughs> No, um, I think, you know, that's a that's actually a really great question. Right. So, um, you know, Andre Holland's character, Ray, he calls it the Bible. Like so when he hands it to um, Eric, you know, when he's like, this is going to help you. Eric probably thinks like this, this, this manila folder is filled with cash to help get like hold him over. Right. Only to later be revealed like the film's Chekhov's gun, you know, moment that it's this book really about a history of of black insurgency, black sporting insurgency. Urgency. And the history itself is not like, oh, we at one time revolted. It was actually like in real time trying to understand what was happening um, um, in colleges and professional sports and amateur sports and how black athletes were considering themselves to be, you know, a part of, of, of you know, black revolutionary possibility. And so the fact that it ends with her looking at it and reading it and him coming out and her saying, you've got to read this is because Ray realizes Eric's not ready. He says, oh, he needs the league. He needs the team. He needs the structure. He's not ready. He's not read up. He doesn't know this history. He doesn't know the possible. He doesn't realize that there has been a historical disenfranchisement like since like the the 70s and and well before that you know that dick gregory the comedian was boycotting olympics like this has been happening for a very very long time and so this revolt right can happen people have been thinking about it people have been trying to architect um um you know construct a blueprint and and be an architect for this um for this moment so the fact that it kind of ends up with this dot 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 like you know ray goes into the room with harry edwards we don't know it's like what's going to happen in high flying bird too right so it's like <laughs> this is going to be kind of a moment is that it's sort of like well let's see what what people do let's see you know what is oh, not to bring up patrick beverly again but he always just seems to be on my mind i guess you know as he says in this moment with what's going on with the league he's like if if LeBron James is hooping, we all hooping. Like we like LeBron James is the people. Like 
we like he runs this league don't get it twisted if he's doing it we're doing it and i think there's something about thinking about the kinds of not just power struggles but like power possibilities when we think about players controlling the league players players revolting for better treatment for fairness um for equity um for control especially from all these like old white guys who like you know couldn't bounce a ball if their life depended on it you know who inherit these teams like 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 they're like second houses you know that's what's kind of messed up about it too it's like oh you know when i bought a team for fun what kind of stuff is that anyways uh, but that's that's really that's my other podcast but i, I could go into that <laughs> for a bit yeah so so uh you mentioned sam and i just thought that the way that um the film portrayed women was really interesting so how do you think they portray black women what do you think their role is in the film and sort of you know this this revolution i would i just would love to hear your thoughts on that that's a great great question i first when i first watched it the first time i was like hmm i really think it's an interesting portrayal of the men but do they get do they get black women to I mean I really like him I really love moonlight you know I really want to see choir boy I mean I think you know and people have pointed out this sort of historical reference points right so Sonia reminds people of Michelle Roberts who becomes the head of you know the NBA's player association the first woman to be to be the head um and I think her character is played in a way that sort of recreates a kind of same like you know um melodramatic domestic narrative work or family <laughs> like that that it's like that was the most compelling thing like letting us know that she's having fertility issues um that just seemed a little off sam's character i actually found to be really interesting and not because of just the similar names um or my obsession with the actress um i first was like oh so she's so she sleeps with eric Ugh. And then, of course, you know, Ray goes up into her and says, like, I, you didn't have to. Like, as if, like, she was trying to coerce. It's like, no, she's a beautiful person. This, this kid is a beautiful man and a baller. Like, it's like they couldn't. I think the film was she was in control in the sense of how she responded by saying, I did it because I wanted to. And I think there was an interesting articulation of a kind of black female agency. She was unwilling to play anybody's game. She right. was looking out for herself. Um, she's like, you know, oh, when, when you know, Sonia says to her, oh, I could use you, you know, she's like, oh, I'm so sorry. I don't like to, I, I, I refuse to be used. That's not a thing I do. And so I think there's a way they were trying to imbue her with agency, but, the, but she was not fleshed out enough yeah. that it just... Um, she unfortunately became flat despite um, um, Zazie's really, um, really great acting that tried to provide a level of dimensionality. Now, the one thing I will say, the film points this out, and I read them in a really popular way, but I could see how people could read it in a critical way, is um, like, you know, um, Jamero Umber's mom, sure. right? So like, you know, they go there and she's, you know, she totally just gives Ray the business. Like, you're not going to come in my house and think you're going to tell me how this business works. And there's something really great about that because there's been such a disregard for the role that black women play, um, particularly black mothers play in their um, young athlete son's lives. Right. So like the dismissal of like Lamar Jackson's mom handling negotiations for him with the NFL. Right. Um, same with Teddy Bridgewater and a lot of 
other people who, you know, who do more than just say, mama, you're my MVP. It's like, it was such a great centering of the kinds of black female labor, particularly mother labor that actually involves an attention to the economy of their children's like, um, or attention to their children's like, you know, not just sporting economy, but actual like financial economy that I thought was just really, really smart. And I think there's a way that she came off to some people as like, you know, controlling and et cetera. But I think that, I think that for me, I just looked at this and saying like, finally showing that like, this is a real thing. Black women are behind a lot of like these players um, behind the financial decisions that they're making and they know their shit. Mm. Um, and I think that's really, and I also know how to use the media. It's like black women have literally created the U.S. and get slept on all the time, um, you know, paid less, given less, done less. And it's like the things we do with all the lesses just put poor people to shame. Um, and I think the film tries to show a little bit of that, but the film itself is so interested in men that it doesn't give enough time to the women um, to kind of do what I'm saying in a more obvious way. Absolutely. No, I, I mean, I, I totally agree with them. Not They were not given enough space whatsoever. And I, I, I watched it twice because the first time just a lot went over my head. And the second time, I really appreciated how Sam and Amara kind of were very clear about their boundaries with people. Like, I will do this. I will not do this. I know how to do this. Don't step on me. And I thought that was, for the little, you know, few seconds we got, I thought that was powerful. Um, okay. I had... I had like one small question about Sam when I watched it the second time, like, cause they, they make it seem as if um, Ray is the one sort of behind the scenes doing everything. But yet Sam is the one who is like, you have to activate Eric. So I kind of was like, I felt like she's not given the credit, right. That she's due because she is the one who was like, we need to control the narrative. Like we need to activate him. So just to sort of curious what you, what you thought about that. I agree with you. I feel like this, the fact that this film is so verbose and really beautiful and like the monologues and soliloquies, you know, you can tell it's totally written by a writer, like, and, I, and that sounds redundant, but you know what I mean? Like a writer's writer. Um, and yet I felt like we were missing scenes because <laughs> I was like, she is doing a lot of a lot of work behind the scenes both some things that we see where it's like you've got to activate oh i'm going to help you i'm going to not help you i'm going to send this you know message out to create this tension is that we weren't we weren't able to see not just we weren't able to see her agency and how that was connected to her own dreams and so it made it seem like they were actually working against each other and for each other in ways that would have actually caused a lot of conflict and less harmony than it was represented on screen. Because I was like, are you interested in helping him? Are you not? It was, there, there were just ways, unfortunately, that, that it seemed like there was some, like the, there was like missing deleted scenes. That's, that's how I felt. Yeah, totally. Okay. Well, let's maybe think a little bit now about these two films um, together and, and sort of, together in this moment because um you know we are seeing politics i mean we've already seen politics sort of explode in the world of sport uh, in the last four or five years uh, not that they were they were ever not political but rather just the sort of explicit in your face miss of the politics of sports to the extent that we have people telling athletes to shut up and dribble um 
But then it's like we've seen that even further compounded, even like the as as the news cycle unfolds. Like for instance, we're seeing college athletes resist uh, outspokenly, which is certainly something we haven't seen that much of, and which I'm incredibly excited to be witnessing right now. Um, and we see NBA players uh, hosting calls where they, you know, collectively kind of challenge the league's policies around the bubble and reopening. Um, you know, we're just we're seeing the Major League Baseball players push back against um, the league's plans and really fight for the pay that they deserve, right? And all of this is happening as, you know, people are out in the streets fighting for their lives in, in the face of a pandemic and police violence. So I'm just curious kind of what can these films tell us, you know, in their depiction of, you know, the black athlete in their respective societies that they're depicting, what can we learn by kind of marrying these films with what we're experiencing around us? I think it goes back to the, the sort of tagline of High Flying Bird. If we're thinking about the relationship between High Flying Bird, Hoop Dreams, and our current moment, you know, it's the idea of, you know, undertaking on the game above the game. So like High Flying Bird is interested in the, the, the game above, right? And the Hoop Dreams is interested in the game, like the, mm-hmm. the, the, the sort of the dream, the idea, the sports, you know, the, the, the pure thing. Um, um, and the relationship between both of those is happening right now. So we're seeing athletes who love, who love their sport, love, love their teammates, love to play, right? But they're also tackling the game above the game, which is that we are in the middle of a pandemic. Who is playing for? Mm-hmm. Like, who are we playing for? Are we playing so that you can recoup some cost? Or is it the NBA? Are we playing because we feel we have to do this? Because if we don't recoup some of this TV costs, you can open up our collective bargaining agreement and, you know, things could be worse off down the line. And so it, that's where it's just a tension between the game and being interested in sports and interested in being able to play and to be able to, you know, release all of that ludic potential um and and enjoy all the pleasures of that um and then the game above that which is like whose bodies are disposable um so that we can consume right so arthur ag and william gates's bodies um we want them to win but we also see how society structures them to be disposable um, so that we can consume these narratives from afar in the comfort of our segregated theaters, right? And be able to, to enjoy the fantasy of a hoop dream because we have other dreams. And with High Flying Bird, it's, it's again, the question of who is, who, is, who is consuming? We're doing this for Snot Rocket Guy, this makes no sense for the Donald Sterlings, right? For Adam Silver, everybody keeps talking about, we got to do this. You know, we can really amplify the Black Lives Matter protests. And it's like, look, when, yeah, when Laura Ingram told LeBron James to shut up and dribble, he had enough ability in Spring Hill Entertainment to be able to make an entire documentary. That did not do what the grassroots movement for Black Lives is doing. Don't get it twisted. Right. So like, I love our athletes. They can keep being a megaphone, but like the feet of the movement 
is like everyday people. And if you think in any well, shape or form that being able to play some games, that what's going to happen on Sports Center is going to be two seconds. They wore some T-shirts. This stuff is still happening. Racial protests. OK, moving on. What do you call it? Should we trade Patrick Beverly? What do you call it? Should we talk about people like their like their property like that? that that's what I mean, if I have to hear Stephen Stephen Smith yell to me about something right now that is not arrest Brianna Taylor's killers. I swear to goodness, I will literally walk to that man's house and probably walk home because I don't want that smoke. But it's not the point. Like the point, like that's that's the kind of thing. So I think both of them are interested in saying it's okay to love the game. It's okay to love the game. But right now, the game above the game is like don't don't get distracted. Don't get it twisted. Don't don't care about what they want you to care about. You control this. The players, the, the schools, I'm so glad they are realizing they are everything. Dabo Sweeney is nothing. <laughs> I love how you brought up Dabo Sweeney. And like, <laughs> because we are not a fan on this show of Dabo Sweeney. I would, I would, maybe I'm speaking for all of us, but we are certainly not a fan. There's like, this, this is sounding like, this is like what, what Kyrie and others have been like talking about, right? Like a return to play is a distraction, is a form of distracting us from like what is really important and what's really going on. So like, um, I guess my like overarching question is like, one, how do you like, what is your read on the current kind of temperature in the return to play um, scheme in the NBA and then the, the critics like Kyrie or like like this is a, a massive distraction and then subsequently like do you think like films and sports films and our entire sporting culture like the films that we've talked about today actually contribute to that distraction overall and and pacify us to like ignore what's really happening and like be entertained by these like stories and these narratives Derek, this is such a good question because number one, like I agree with Kyrie. It's like, we don't need the distraction, but also we're not, not playing basketball because of black lives matter. We're not playing basketball because of COVID-19. Like yeah. this is still occurring. Carl Anthony Thomas mother passed from this disease. Like our, like, like, who lose one player, lose one player. Like it should be enough, even the idea of it. And that should tell you about what kind of league or more importantly, what kind of league is created that it says we have no way, we billionaires have no way to support the player making $900,000 during this kind of experience. That is a huge problem because it's not actually, it's, it's a pandemic within a pandemic, but the originating pandemic is still happening. And so that is one of my largest concerns is that people are forgetting that their health is at risk. <laughs> um, like your, your actual health and the way you may spread that to other people. And the problem with that is because people keep thinking about sports as something that's not only going to pacify a nation, but that sports films have been complicit. 
if you want to see a genre that loves talking about race, watch a sports film. And it's not just for Jesse Owens's, you know, race movie. It's it's your Remember the Titans. It's your Glory Road. We love racial reconciliation because if we can play it out, if we can hit that buzzer beater, if we can come together left side, strong side, all of that, like sports have conditioned us actually, like those are the films that deal with race and are able to solve race. So if we can see, you know, black and white holding hands together wearing t-shirts and then going off and playing that means we are making progress and that is not actually you know true that's how we get glory road a film that somehow decides that again the white coach is the most interesting part of the film i don't get it i don't (laughs) get it right we get cool runnings we get a revisionist story about you know jamaican bobsledders right because even then it's like what do they gain pride that slow clap i mean i clap too because it's like oh look at you all carrying that bobsled across you did it you beat them at their own game you lost the olympics but you beat them at the racism game you know it's like we have been so like so we think about sports as going to do that and if that's the case i was just like you know get a contract with buena vista ask for some disney plus films you can watch a bunch of stuff if you need to feel that way right now but yeah sports films have made us complicit that's why people really enjoyed reliving last dance and honestly i want to say a little follow-up to my last dance commentary after just watching the women of troy that should have been a 10-part documentary (laughs) that's who actually needed all 10 of those hours somebody make that happen well well, well, listen i i I loved what you have to say because to me the sports film as a genre is just pure unadulterated spectacle it's the spectacle uh it is like it's just in fact it's teleology and towards this supposed mythical post-racial America, exactly as you've said. And we see, like, every one of those films you mentioned, they're doing precisely the same work. And I think that, like, what we fail to see too often in an analysis of Hoop Dreams is that Hoop Dreams is doing exactly the same work as well. Um, But, you know, maybe it's like a final note. I'm curious. Would you say, you know, like, they're in the... um, in the autonomous zone in Seattle, I believe that they're, like, you know, they're airing anti-racist films, etc., uh, you know, I don't, I don't actually know what they're showing or I don't have a you know, commentary on how effective that is, but uh, it came to mind in this moment. My question is, you know, if you had like a, a film festival where people were trying to like push back against police violence and like autonomously kind of take control of a society that is so profoundly white supremacist, uh, would you show High Flying Bird in that context? Does that film right now stand up as something we should be paying attention to? Yes, I would absolutely show this film. I think this film is, is it's significant, it's well-researched, it's historical and yet contemporary. Um, and it, it is particularly thinking about the ways in which we can move from racial capitalism and and white supremacy um to to imagine something otherwise um it should be required viewing um if anything um but but yeah this film would definitely be programmed alongside other you know other there i would also do a plug like i did in the black athlete podcast for Haile grima's hourglass because yeah. both of these films are interested in sports and um but yet do not want you to be seduced by the game and i think that again be careful about what romance is you um and 
sometimes, like I said, it's the hoop, it's the it's the ball, it's the court, and it's the rope. And um, and black people can't be seduced by the rope. Um, we have a we have too much of a fraught history with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, listen. On that note, I mean, there's a lot of people, folks listening, who might be putting together online courses, and they're going to be wanting to show films. Um, <laughs> so I think it's really helpful, frankly, to have um, those suggestions. Uh, but what I really want to do now is just thank you so much for your time. This was an incredibly illuminating conversation. Absolutely. Um, everything we could have hoped for. So really, all that's left to be said is buy the damn book, people. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Somehow, let's try to get an academic on the New York Times bestseller. Let's do it. All you have to do is buy a thousand million of these books. Um, We will break through. (laughs) Yes. No. um, I'm available. Yeah. (laughs) Otherwise, I'm. I'm. um, um, I look forward to continuing the conversation um, in in various Cornell classrooms, um, but hopefully um, in other in other ways with with you all um, and in my writing and hopefully um, just in the world in general. So thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of the End of Sport podcast. If you enjoy the show, please feel to like, share, and leave a review. And as always, you can reach out to us on Twitter or Instagram at End of Sport Pod.